The Italian Wine Podcast is the community-driven platform for Italian wine geeks around the world. Support the show by donating at italianwinepodcast.com. Donate five or more euros and we'll send you a copy of our latest book, My Italian Grape Geek Journal, absolutely free. To get your free copy of My Italian Grape Geek Journal, click support us at italianwinepodcast.com or wherever you get your pods. Grazie mille. Welcome to Masterclass U.S. Market with me, Juliana Colangelo. This show has been designed to demystify the U.S. market for Italian wineries through interviews with experts in sales and distribution, social media, communications, and so much more. We will quiz each of our esteemed guests at the end of each episode to solidify the lessons that we've learned. So sharpen your pencils, get out your notebooks, and join us each week to learn more about the U.S. market. Hello, welcome to Masterclass U.S. Wine Market. Today, I'm thrilled to welcome Danny Brager to the Italian Wine Podcast. We're here today in Verona at Wine to Wine, so it's exciting to have you here in person, Danny. Thanks for joining me. No kidding. Yeah? It's good. Danny has a wealth of experience in the beverage alcohol industry, analyzing trends for many years. He formerly headed the Nielsen Beverage Alcohol Practice Area in the U.S. for over 20 years, and in his current consulting role, Danny provides data-driven analysis to beverage alcohol companies seeking to translate information into authoritative, fact-based insights in support of their corporate or brand goals. Danny is also a special advisor to the Wine Market Council. Danny, you just presented today, this morning, to one of our opening sessions of Full House, and you provided a really in-depth analysis on the biggest trends that are currently shaping the U.S. retail wine market. So that's what we're going to focus on today okay. in our interview, but it should be a breeze for you. You already did it this morning, but for any of our... <laughs> I forgot about it. Yeah. For any of our listeners who were not here at Wine to Wine this year, this is going to be a great recap of Danny's presentation. So before we dive in, Danny, tell us a little bit more just about your journey and how you ended up here in a recording in booth in Verona talking about retail trends. <laughs> okay. Well, let's see. I started in Toronto, married a lady from Southern California, ended up in California. But mm-hmm. uh, on the work side of things, I actually had been working for Nielsen covering all sorts of other categories that weren't very exciting, like canned fruit and vegetables, and mm-hmm. diapers and stuff <laughs> like that. But I was lucky enough in early, sort of the early 2000s to be asked to lead their beverage alcohol area, which was fun. I didn't know a whole lot about it at the time, but that involved working with all of Nielsen's beer, wine, spirits, suppliers, importers, distributors, retailers, mm-hmm. industry associations, and, and so on and so forth. So, And I had done that for up until mid-2020. Okay. And again, not covering just wine, but beer, wine, and spirits, which I actually think is really important given the competitive nature of the right. industry. And then I left in mid-2020, didn't exactly know what I was going to do, but I thought maybe I could sort of help, especially medium and small size companies, figure mm-hmm. out what data they might need, how to get the data, how to interpret it. And I've been doing that ever since then. And in addition to that, I also work with Azure Associates, which is a strategic advisory firm involved in M&A activity, route-to-market solutions, and so okay. on. And as you mentioned, uh, help out the Wine Market Council from time to time. And right. love to speak at different industry events and mm-hmm. talk about what's going on with numbers. Kind of. right. that's, that's my thing is what are, what are the facts, what's yeah. the data. Definitely. And that's so important because I think a lot of us, and I'm talking about myself here too, interpreting numbers, right? And putting them into digestible information that then we as communicators, as marketers, as salespeople, as anyone running a company can then take an action on. I think that's what we're here to talk about today. So our three key takeaways for today's masterclass are number one, how the U.S. retail market has changed in recent years. 
for the wine industry specifically. Number two, how Italian wineries can better master the U.S. retail market and what opportunities there are. And finally, some predictions for the future. So much is changing constantly, and I know that's a tough question to ask, but no one would be better to answer it than you. You're going to ask it anyway. Yes, I'm going to ask it anyway, and you have numbers to back up your opinions, so (laughs) that's always valuable. But, you know, just going back to, again, things have changed so much in the last four years. We've had a pandemic, a couple world wars going on, economic strain, lots of external factors that are impacting everything. But talk a little bit more to us about how these external factors have impacted the U.S. retail market specifically for the wine industry? Sure. So, like you said, just a ton of change that I suppose that always happens. Mm -hmm. Uh, Always lots of change. It just feels more monumental these days. Mm -hmm. But I'd say, I mean, the economy has changed things. Inflation is is tough on people. And I kind of think of the average person and they have to have to buy their food, buy their gas, stay in their homes or rent or whatever they're doing. And then hopefully if they have some money left over, they like to indulge in things like wine. But all those economic pressures are putting strains on consumer budgets. And right. That impacts how much they can buy, how often they can buy it, drink it, et cetera, et cetera. So that's, that's certainly one thing. You know, just even thinking of like wine isn't the cheapest beverage around. It's, no. You know, it's, mm-hmm. I keep thinking like a glass of wine is $2.50. A beer, 12-ounce beer is a dollar something. And uh, right. a serving of, of spirits is in the dollar range. So. We're talking about retail here again. Everybody. Talking about retail, yeah, because I was going to say, I mean, I wish a glass of wine was yeah, $2.50 okay. well, I mean, at the restaurant. About, <laughs> you and me, that's what we have to pay when we're going out. Right. Or we're buying something and bringing back home. Mm-hmm. So we've got all those things. Um you know, we've had the pandemic, which I think one of the impacts of that is it's trained people to do more things at home. Yes. And that's having its impact uh, along with pricing and on-premise. So if you look at the numbers, there are less people on a relative basis. More people are buying stuff and bringing it into their homes as opposed to going out. So that certainly puts pressure on both the operators of on-premise, but also people or suppliers that do a lot of business in, in restaurants right. and bars. So we'd expect that to have a positive impact in retail. Right, or see some of that business moving to it, retail, or you see the shift. I mean, yeah, there's proportionally more being done in off-premise than there is in on-premise. So we definitely see the shift. But one of the problems is that the wine category is down in both on and off-premise. So, yeah, but it's down more on the longer term in in on-premise. The other thing that I think is increasingly important is just competition. Yeah, for wine, and when I say competition, it's from all sorts of different places. It's within the category, within the beverage alcohol category. So Everything in the spirits and or beer world, mm-hmm. it's alternative things like cannabis, which I actually think is having a larger impact than maybe we think. And it's just coming from also people, especially younger consumers, who are choosing to drink less often, whether that's because of pocketbook yeah. issues or, or their, their preferences, um, probably both those things. But Totally. And then the core wine consumer, older folks, there's yeah. less of them every mm-hmm. year. Definitely. <laughs> so yeah. helpful. Right. That's a change that's happening whether we like it or not, right? That is true. Yeah. If you can figure that one out, you'd be a billionaire. Uh, So, Danny, speaking of younger consumers, we know a lot of the work at the Wine Market Council, we spoke to Liz Tosh uh, a few episodes back, is around consumer consumption habits when it comes to the wine category. So can you summarize for us some of the biggest changes that are happening for the consumer when it comes to how they're consuming wine? Younger consumers in general, I think where the Wine Market Council and the members certainly want the focus of the research to be. So, again, that's where I think all the competitive aspects come into play. Because right. um, I look at, again, beer, wines, and spirits and see what's growing and what's not. And, and I start with the fact 
that if you look at overall consumption over years and years and years, it hasn't really increased like on a volume basis, total alcohol. Yeah. So therefore, as one, if one is going up, something else is going down. Totally, by, by yeah. By definition, right? And now dollars are going up because people are trading up at the same time generally. Mm-hmm. The volume is, is pretty flat. And if you look at the sort of the world through that lens, spirits has been gaining share pretty consecutively for quite a period of time, and beer has been losing share for quite a period of time. And right. wine was also doing well. Uh, so the old adage was that wines and spirits are growing and beer is declining. That, mm-hmm. that was the adage. And that started to change a little bit in 2000, sort of 18, when wine growth rates started to slow down. Okay. I think got a bit of a bump in 2020, partly due to COVID. And right. Buying a lot of stuff. and mm-hmm. Stocking up. I'm going to buy my five-liter, three-liter box yeah. just in case <laughs> the world ends. But then I think where it's settled down into is that spirits continue to grow. And there's a few segments that we can talk about that are really behind that. And some of that is coming out of wine buying and consumption, and younger consumers are really leading that. It kind of started actually even before spirits with like the hard seltzer craze. Right. That's way down now, but now there's the RTD cocktail craze, mm-hmm. which I think has longer legs and will, yep. and will grow for longer than hard seltzers really did in retrospect. Mm-hmm. So that's one big change. And then I think this whole social moderation, which is really it, led by younger people, and it's all about whatever I'm going to eat or drink, how is that going to fit in with my desire for a healthier lifestyle? Right. And some of that involves less drinking, some of it involves no drinking, some right. of it involves low alcohol, no alcohol, all these things. That, Tracking calories, yeah, putting it into things. apps to yeah. track yeah, consumption. Right. We didn't totally. You know, we didn't do that 10 yeah. years ago. But even people like me, actually. Yeah. Have my little Fitbit and check, and check what's going <laughs> Tracking on. Tracking our steps every day. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So what are some ways you think we face this as an industry and as a, as a wine industry specifically? Yeah. Well, I think there's a couple things. One is products. Yeah. I mean, there are, if you look at some successful brands, they've evolved into lower calorie versions, either launched a new brand or taken an existing brand and extended the brand into light versions. So. Right. No sugar, low-cal, so on. There's a lot of low-alc brands that are mm-hmm. out there. There's some RTD wine-based things, spritzes, and stuff like that. that okay. Aren't as big as spirits, but, you know. They're out there. They're <laughs> out there. So part of it is products. And, and I think as science evolves and technical aspects evolve, things like non-alc wines, some are good, some maybe can be yeah. improved. But they, right. they will improve. And I look at yep. beer as an example. Definitely. non alcoholic beer tastes pretty good, kind of yep. like the alcoholic version. So I think that'll change over time. Then I think there's the aspect of how do we communicate that in a responsible, legal way, which is difficult to talk mm-hmm. about um, health and drinking. Right. But how do we communicate that in that responsible way that, you know, wine in moderation can be part of a healthier lifestyle? Right. Um, and I thought it was interesting, the Wine Market Council research when you ask people, like, what wellness means to them, mm-hmm. they'll give you answers like, well, the calories and so on and so forth. But they'll also say relaxation, social connections, yeah. an appropriate work-life balance. And I think right. wine can fit into all those things. Social so wellness, social. right? Yeah. Yeah, yeah that's a that's part, part of wellness. Of mm-hmm. But I, I don't think as an industry we've kind of figured out that message and yeah. voiced it collectively right. uh, with enough force and power. And collectively, and like you said earlier, legally, and figure out ways in which to legally and responsibly communicate some of those benefits of drinking wine specifically and following that moderation topic. I've seen some things which I thought were quite novel. There's catalogs like Better For You, which I Mm -hmm. think the idea behind is really great. I'm just not sure if it's okay to say drinking is better for you. What they're trying to get across is products that are 
in quotation marks better right. for you. I'm not sure if the right tagline is better for you. Maybe it is. I'm not sure. Right. But coming up with ways to communicate mm-hmm. some of the benefits that you mentioned or the reason, you know, and also the lifestyle aspect, too, of right. drinking wine, for sure. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. So now that we've talked about some of the challenges, let's try to flip and, and talk about some of the opportunities and the other side of the coin. What are some of the opportunities that lie for the Italian wine category specifically in the U.S. market? I know you covered a bunch of them today in your session. So tell us a little bit more about some of the opportunities there are for the Italian wine category. Well, again, numbers-wise, I look at just data to say, like, where are we doing really well? well yeah. The best example, like, if, if someone says what's doing really well in, in wine, my first Example is Prosecco is doing awesome. Mm-hmm. Like sustained growth, which is really tough in, in wine. So, and Prosecco Rosé, we learned, right? I mean, Prosecco Rosé, which is an opportunity to build on top of just, you know, Prosecco before Rosé. Italian Wine Podcast, part of the Mama Jumbo Shrimp family. So there's opportunities like that. I think there's opportunities in looking at, when I say we, I'm talking about Italy, where we are strong and where we could be stronger. Yeah. So I had the chance to look at the top import states and where it, and Italy's share of the top 13 import states. Mm-hmm. And Florida, for instance, and then there was a class after me all about Florida. But Florida right. was a state where our share is much less, and it's a huge import state, obviously. Mm-hmm. Our share is much less than in some other states. Interesting. Now, what, you know, then obviously you want to dive into why is that? What could we be doing better? Florida's a big Hispanic, Latino sure. population, probably not doing well with Latinos. Yeah. Some other countries are. They're, Spain is doing quite well. South America. So yeah. Mm-hmm. So there's, you know, look at things like that. And then... You know, then it's back to, geez, there's like 6 million visitors from the U.S. that go to Italy every mm-hmm. year. What are we doing with them to make them ambassadors when they come back? Keep them engaged um, in the category. Absolutely. Yeah, definitely. There's 50,000 Italian restaurants in the U.S. I mean, there's just, yeah. I think there's just, and people love Italy. There's just a ton of opportunities. For, people do love Italy. Absolutely. Love Italy. Yeah, I think the Italian wine category has a huge upside there and a big benefit that a lot of other categories just can't claim is the Italian love affair, American love affair with Italy, also the American knowledge of Italian culture, Italian food, the, they understand it, right? right? It's so proliferated and so huge across the U.S. market. I mean, anywhere you go from a major city to a tiny suburb, you know, there's there's some form of an Italian restaurant. Absolutely. Like, you'll find it, right? And it's even for the savvier travelers. I mean, it's not just Italy. They know the different regions, which give opportunities for those regions within Italy to market themselves as a part of the Italian Right, exactly. Do you think, you know, previously we're just we're talking about, you know, wine and health and what's happening with con- younger consumers cutting back. Do you think when it comes to, let's call it the wine and wellness messaging or opportunities that the Italian wine category in particular might have opportunities of how to market to this new consumer when it comes to that aspect that I mean, other brand, that it, maybe other regions don't? I mean, there are obviously aspects of the Italian industry. Yes. Yeah. Like we know the lighter styles, if you look at, again, the numbers, the data says lighter styles, whites are doing better than red, so on and so forth. Obviously, right. Italy has you know, lots of great white white wines and yeah. different regions and so on. So, yes, yes, by looking at, obviously, each supplier has to look at their portfolio and do they have the kinds of wines that American consumers, younger ones, right. seem to be looking for. But beyond that, then I think Italy falls in step with collect. I mean, some of the problems, the issues that we're talking about, 
wine industry demand is falling primarily among young consumers. They're not specific to the U.S. Right. or Italy. They're a problem for the industry. Globally. Yeah, the collective. Yeah, for That's sure. Why I wish we could. Yeah. <laughs> Let's embark on a massive global campaign. Yes, exactly. You know, you, you present all this really valuable data information at conferences like Wine to Wine, and I know you speak at a lot of other conferences as well. What are some of the follow-up questions you get or people coming up to the stage to talk to you after you present? Like, what are what's really resonating with the audience or what are they wanting to know more about? So the first thing is, can I get a copy of the presentation? Yeah, of course. <laughs> all those numbers, yeah. There's a lot of numbers to digest. I think, you know, I certainly have a lot of people who come up and they have an idea about right. something. And they're, I love them because, you know, they got these great ideas and they just want my opinion. Like, do you think that would work in the U.S. market? Yeah. So that's a common question. I think the biggest common question <laughs> that's sort of from everybody is back to that. How do we engage with a younger consumer? Because yeah. we, I think we know now that we have an issue. I'm right. not sure that if we go back, and I, again, I've been at it for 20-something years. I'm yeah. not sure if I go back 10 or so years that people even thought that there was an issue. Mm. But as we see older people, like we're losing, we're losing yeah. every day. So, And then we see the numbers as well. Right. And we're seeing falling demand. So I think there's more of a recognition that we have an issue. Yeah. What do you think about the argument that's out there or the opinion that's out there that people will age into wine, like that a lot of people are just not old enough yet to appreciate wine and that as millennials and Gen Z get older and buy houses and start families that they'll start drinking more wine. Do the numbers show anything pointing to that? Yeah, the numbers. So here's, first, I hate hope being a strategy. That's not a a great way to go about it. Well, first of all, some numbers suggest that if I look at in the Wine Market Council data, they break out wine consumers by age group. So I can look at, you know, 21 to 30-year-olds and so on and so forth. Even when I'm looking at 40 to 49 and 50 to 59, mm-hmm. I can see that the percentage of core consumers there, people who drink wine at least once a week or more often, is less than sort of the 70-plus. Mm-hmm. That worries me because if I'm 40 or 50, I'm not sure if I'm going to change my drinking habits all that much. I right. Set Pretty set. Mm-hmm. So that worries me. And um, I'm drinking less than the 70-plus-year-olds. That's surprising, so, yeah. So that's worrisome. The other thing that I think has changed so much is the diversity of choice is just so much broader than it For used sure. to be. So yeah. there are just so many more choices, and younger people certainly are enamored with the broader choices, and they're taking advantage of it. I'm not sure that we should rest on the fact that they will... You know, as soon as they turn 30, they're going to, I don't like those cocktails anymore. Right. I'm going to switch to wine. I mean, exactly. some of that will happen, but I just think the world's changed. And then yeah. the third part, which is more, I guess, uh, specific to the U.S. market, I'm pretty confident we have not done a great job with understanding not just the younger consumer, but the younger multicultural consumer yes. mm-hmm. who are sort of one and the same. And we've talked a lot about that on this show and, you know, on the Italian Wine Podcast in general, that topic around reaching not just younger consumers, but consumers of different demographics. Absolutely. Yeah. And even in Hispanics, that's the really broad term, but there's Mexicans, there's Cubans, there's Central Americans, and and they're not all the same either. Yeah. you, You need to go pretty deep. Totally. And a few weeks ago on Saturday Night Live, Bad Bunny performed, and he was the host, and several of the skits were done in Spanish oh, without really? subtitles. Oh, my goodness. Which, to me, I mean, that, me. yeah, you have NBC, SNL is putting out content in Spanish without English subtitles. That sends a huge message to me about the demographics of our country. Absolutely. Yeah, so that's huge. And I think what you're saying about understanding that consumer, understanding they're not monoliths, and diving into how to best reach those consumers authentically is, is really key to winning those consumers, yeah. too. 
the other categories we're competing against, again, I think they've done a better job. Yeah. I mean, they, you know, there are a lot of big companies. For sure. A lot of resources, a lot of money to, to understand it. But, right. But um, that also means, like, as an industry, we need to diversify representativeness of right. those consumers and workforce and leaders and so on. Absolutely. I think it starts with having a more diverse workforce in the wine industry, right, that understands for sure. Definitely. Danny, as we wind down, we do a little rapid fire quiz at the end of every. <laughs> Don't worry. Um, <laughs> no numbers involved. We ask our guests the same three questions. So, question number one, and please try to answer one sentence or less. What is your number one tip for mastering the U.S. wine market? Can I give you two quick things? Yes. Okay. So, two quick things are understand the size of the opportunity. There are numbers generally that you can get to, but sometimes you have to be creative or ask the right people, but mm-hmm. figure out what the real size of the opportunity is. And number two is hugely complex market. You really got to figure it out, like understand yeah. it, whether you do it by sending people, send yourself, work with right. the right distributors. Yeah, absolutely. Question number two, what is something you might have told your younger professional self about working in the wine industry in the U.S.? <laughs> <laughs> Actually, that sort of gets back to the 1B because I used to think that the wine market, I thought it was ordinary consumer. I thought yeah. it was pretty simple. You're right. Boy, I started to learn it. It's like, oh, my God, you got 50 states, and they're all different, yep. different things. It's, like, hugely confusing. So I feel bad for anybody trying to understand. Yeah, definitely. And finally, we all travel a lot. We're here in Italy and have traveled here from California. So what is your favorite travel hack when you're traveling for work? Well, a couple of years ago, I finally got somewhat smart and said, i got to figure out how to get into some of those airport lines. Oh, yeah. So that's, that I figured out how to do at least a couple of those. Yeah. And I don't know if this is a travel hack, but I'm a tremendously good sleeper. Well, that's so lucky. I can yeah. get <laughs> I usually miss takeoff. So, uh, oh, wow. Good for it you. It just feels like I'm in my mother's womb and yeah. rolling on the tarmac. So, yeah. So I'm out for a couple hours. Oh, so good for you. Helps. Well, that's lucky. Yeah. Well, Danny, thank you so much for joining us today uh, on the Italian Wine Podcast here in Verona. How can our listeners connect with you? BreakerDanny at gmail.com is the best way. Pretty Great. simple. Last name, first name. No separation. I'd okay. love to talk to people and get anybody's questions, feedback. All right, fantastic. Thanks for being okay. here. Thanks, Julia. Thank you for joining me today. Stay tuned each week for new episodes of Masterclass US Wine Market with me, Juliana Colangelo. And remember, if you enjoyed today's show, hit the like and follow buttons wherever you get your podcasts.